Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. This is Singapore's most influential radio station. We are dissecting Fed speak phrase of the day. Soon to be appropriate to raise interest rates. That's what we heard Fed Chair Jerome Powell uh, say overnight. We're going to break down what was actually said and then attempt to read between the lines of the unsaid of the Fed announcement. Then a look at uh, whether or not the historic bounces in the stock market will come to a grinding halt this year. And when stock markets go wild, what sound advice in this investor's playbook? Then we'll turn to the S&P 500, a closer look at its evaporating gains in 2022. And finally, if we're seeing nervous investors deleveraging from equities, why aren't they moving into the U.S. bond market? We'll put those questions to Arun Pai, our favorite investor, chief strategy officer at Flow, straight-talking investor. How are you, Arun? I'm very good, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well. So some say there were little surprises in terms of what Fed Chair Jerome Powell said overnight. What did you take from Powell's messages? Uh, not so much in my humble opinion, at least. I think it was all... Um, as expected, uh, the aspect of finally, you know, re- having the lift off in interest rates from basically it being bucket or floored at zero percent for quite a few years right now, it's all going to start. The lift off is going to be in March. Uh, Fed bots claim to be about interest rates uh, raised this year. Uh, the market is pricing in four. Uh, I personally am going more towards the market side. I think inflation has shot up a lot more than expected. So we need to see the Fed trying to like cool things off a little bit, especially considering the labor market is so tight too. But I think, you know, if you had to broadly categorize uh, what Jerome Powell was saying, uh, one aspect is interest rates going to start rising in March, most definitely, mm-hmm. uh, as well as this aspect of the bond purchases are going to be halted close to around the March time zone. He's not given an exact time stamp on that yet. But and then he'll slowly start rolling off the balance sheet. You know, like the Fed to put numbers to this, the Fed's balance sheet has grown to basically nine trillion dollars over the past couple of years, especially on the back of the COVID pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see. And they're coming they're coming up with a roadmap. They want it to obviously be done in an orderly fashion, not try to create too much volatility in the financial markets. Easier said than done, obviously, but uh, we should start seeing this uh, stopping of purchases by March uh, and then slowly start seeing the roll off of the balance sheet, probably to the tune of anywhere between 50 to $100 billion per month, starting probably for the middle of this year, in um, my estimation. So the Fed is taking up the fight against inflation. If it happens in March, this will be the first U.S. rate hike since the pandemic. And the Fed also signaling that uh, it's really a statement called Principles for Reducing the Size of the Federal Reserve's Balance Sheet, just as it did back in 2014. But some say the big difference between then and now is that the Fed is certainly showing it's not willing to wait almost two years to start reducing its holdings. But of course, the variables are different now, right? Right. So, you know, there is, uh, at least based on the statement yesterday, there is definitely a tone of them being a little bit more aggressive this time around. And that, you know, contingent to not another absolutely crazy variant of COVID coming along or, you know, huge geopolitical issues that's going on between Russia and Ukraine and if NATO, China, US all have to step in. 
uh, are those two really big teams or risks out there in the market, which uh, the Fed chief obviously highlighted also in his speech. He was claiming that uh, he's still sticking to his grounds to some extent that inflation, especially due to supply chain issues, uh, should start subsiding by the middle of this year. Uh, so from that aspect, you know, the path is relatively clear for him to do both, increasing interest rates and at the same time start reducing or maybe with a slight time delay start uh, reducing his balance sheet. Things are very different from now versus, you know, a uh, number of years ago, as you were highlighting, absolutely spot on. You know, inflation numbers like this have not been seen since the 1980s. Mm. And when you have food inflation going up the way it is, you have asset bubbles across a number of spaces, which are starting to slowly be, I wouldn't say pop, but at least deflated most definitely. Uh, at least you're starting to see signs of that, which I believe from a long-term perspective is actually quite healthy for the markets. So as long as the Fed can continue doing what it's doing, navigating that fine line of ensuring that uh, you know, we're not stuck at rock bottom interest rates. We're starting to at least reduce the amount of the balance sheet that the Fed has. Who knows, right? In like, say, two, three years time, you you want Fed to have as much as possible in their pocket mm-hmm. in case of another risk that comes up. Mm-hmm. And right now, with interest rates at zero and the balance sheet at like close to 10 trillion, there really isn't that much more room. So use this opportunity well. Labor markets are very tight. The economy is growing at a relatively healthy pace. Uh, you know, can try to ignore the day-to-day movements in the market as mm. much as possible mm. and just ensure that the long-term economic growth is still there in the U.S. as well as uh, the labor market is very healthy, which it is right now. So, you know, good timing. Well, you sound very calm, Arun, quite in contrast to, you know, some of the headlines that scream catastrophic stock market crash isn't over. Here's how much worse it could get. That from Forbes. Bloomberg asking, is the stock market crashing? And plenty of my favorite YouTubers as well, all questioning, is 2022 the year of the stock market crash? And then what should our playbook be if that happens? Now, I know that you, like Warren Buffett, don't like to overlay economic news headlines over what's hard enough to understand investing and that you look basically you like to evaluate companies right but i mean is there any truth to this idea that um i I don't know if you're hearing as well a lot out there about questioning whether the stock market could come to a grinding halt this year i I think it's not affected me as much uh, because as you rightly mentioned the way at least i look at the stock market is individual companies, individual businesses trying to invest in them for the long run. Mm-hmm. But I think anyone who's been invested into these quote unquote, you know, hot sectors or trend followers, it's been uh, quite a big disaster. And I think even the headline equity markets correcting doesn't truly showcase the pain a lot of these people are facing right now. I mean, let's take a look at these five or 10, uh, and I was just doing this exercise like earlier this week, Mm. of these five or 10 companies that are, you know, anywhere from $10 billion to $100 billion market cap. These are not like small companies by any stretch of the means, right? Mm. Beyond meat, share price has gone from $200 to $60. Zoom, $550 to $140. Grab, $16 to $6. E, Singapore's darling, 350 to 130. Roblox, Coinbase, Square, Shopify, Netflix. I mean, any of these names that are 
50 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion dollar market cap companies, they've all corrected from their uh, near price high, which all typically was there in the past, like, say, six months to a year. They're down like anywhere from 30 percent on the conservative side to like 60 or 70 percent, which is pretty massive numbers, considering this is not the situation of like, uh, you know, end uh, 1999s, the dot-com crash where you had a Pets.com going bankrupt, but Pets.com was like a couple of hundred million dollars plus market cap or whatever, right? These are massive household name companies that a lot of retail investors especially went in because of seeing the tremendous amounts of price appreciation starting from probably give or take March 2020, right? When, because of all the Fed easing, because of all this, this helicopter money that was put into uh, people's uh, bank accounts, everyone started punting around in the stock market. Share price went up 5x, 6x. Retail market came in, took it up even further. And now they're sadly left holding the bag, right? So you have all these massive named companies, massive market cap, as well as household names, crashing so much. So I think, you know, the headlines that Forbes and Wall Street Journal, et cetera, are saying about uh, market correction, 15, 20%, it, it, it's kind of hiding the fact that there's actually a lot more pain that's being felt in the market right now because other, I mean, FANG, uh, excluding Netflix, which has also gone through a complete uh, disaster in terms of price action, excluding Netflix, those, the other big technology companies are still holding up the stock index. Right. And you can throw in Tesla into that equation, too, at present. But all the other very large tech names have corrected substantial amounts, not even a correction of 20 percent. You're talking about 50 percent, 60 percent. Right. So I think from that perspective, long term wise, it's much better to see uh, this kind of price action for a person who is looking at value and wants to slowly start getting into some of these really great named companies. I mean, like Zoom is a fantastic example. At $550, this was trading at over like 130, 140 PE. Now at $140, it's coming to a more closer, like more fathomable 40 PE. Love the product, love what they do. Uh, I think it's coming a lot closer to the point that uh, I would love to start uh, investing into some of these names. Yeah, there are lots of bargains out there. Even PayPal, right? 300 at one point and today, 156.98. Absolutely. <laughs> Square, same sector. I mean, so this is across, it's not just, uh, I mean, it's within, most of them are within the tech space, though, in all fairness. But within the tech space also, it's mostly these high flyer names that potentially went way above their uh, valuation metrics mm. uh, just because it was being chased by certain investors. I mean, that's uh, which is very different from the likes of Amazon, Google, especially those two names that, uh, you know, still reasonable valuations, I would say, still obviously very solid companies with a great competitive moat, uh, maybe with some advantage of the fact that the large Chinese names, mm-hmm. uh, it's been difficult for investors to get in, uh, you know, want to want to put money over there, given the headline political risks on that side of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to invest in Tencent, Alibaba, and you still want large cap exposure to tech, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, to some extent, maybe are still decent names to uh, deploy some capital into. So it takes a certain sort of psychology um, as an investor to be steely and, you know, hold your resolve 
in times where you do see, you know, headlines screaming catastrophic markets, what's ahead? Um, for example, if you sold PayPal because it's 19% down this year, you know, would you be depriving yourself of a possible bump up um, in the years to come, so to speak? So it takes a certain psychology, I think, to, to hold your ground. And also, you know, it depends on your investor, investor time frame as well. When stock markets go wild, here's a question. What is sound advice in your investor playbook? Exactly what you mentioned. You know, you're absolutely correct, wherein just because of what happened in the past three, four months doesn't mean you should be selling the stock or buying the stock. And that goes to, you know, any price action in the past, right? Because obviously the market is forward looking. You have to get a good idea and gauge of how the business is going to grow mm. over the next three, five, ten years. You know, I was reading one uh, research analyst report on Microsoft that came out with very solid earnings. And the guy literally and very correctly mentioned, I don't think uh, Azure, which is the cloud uh, software name mm-hmm. or the cloud platform of Microsoft, I don't think Azure being able to sell more contracts this year is going to be affected that much by the 10-year U.S. government treasury rate, right? And it just goes to show these are companies that have been, as long as the underlying DNA of the business is about innovation, continuously trying to ensure customers can be kept happy either because of quality or the price point, don't let your decision of you believe that the 10-year U.S. government rate is going to go from 1.8 and it might cross the 2% hurdle and that's a huge technical indicator that there's going to be a recession or correction in the markets, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe in the short term for like a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even like half a year or something, there might be correlation, but it all boils down to, at least from the perspective of equity investing, it all boils down to the underlying business fundamentals. And that exactly goes to show you shouldn't be buying a stock just because it's gone up three times in the past four months Mm -hmm. and neighbors are talking about it, Mm -hmm. nor should you be selling it because it's down 30-40% from where you still believe that this company can be very successful still. I mean, I know a close friend who's a very good value investor. Mm. He loved C at close to 300. It's $130 right now, but that, you know, it just goes to show if... He, his valuation metrics are such that the valuation of the company can go up close to over $1,000 in terms of the underlying share price, then hold it out for the next five years. What's important is not to let near price, you know, near-term price action influence your investing decision. Very important to not have leverage at all because, you know, you start taking leverage as a double-edged sword, right? You look very smart and a, a savant in the financial markets when things are going your way because you've magnified your return. Mm-hmm. But that same magnification the other way around means you can get cleaned out, right? Like the number, the, the graveyard of investors in these FX foreign exchange, high leverage platforms or cryptocurrency platforms, or for that matter, even equity platforms, right? Like these discount brokerages, all private banks giving leverage, giving loan to value, people getting greedy, levering up, buying a lot more than what their underlying equity is, a price correction of 30-40% immediately means you're down 80 or 90%. And from that point onward, you need, your underlying price has to go up 10x or you need to be putting in a lot more capital into play. So having a little bit of uh, you know, a safety net or dry firepower to ensure that regardless of these market volatilities, 
you can take advantage of these situations and you can slowly start, you know, scaling back into these names or slowly start lowering your average costing contingent to you having a nice little safety nest egg uh, for the rainy day, Mm. I think is the secret of long-term successful investing. Great insights there, Arun, for us all. Let's take a closer look at the S&P 500. What's happening there? The index hasn't been, well, I mean, it's dropped 11% so far, um, headed into correction territory on Monday. Um, Some say, you know, this is dramatic. Look at the technical backdrop. Inflation, tightening policy, uh, political, uh, geopolitical uncertainties, the most in, in a while. Um, so is this the end of the historic rally for S&P 500? The short term, uh, and you know, obviously this is with a big caveat that I don't think anyone can predict short term price mm-hmm. movements and stuff. But it definitely does seem to be the case, right? Because uh, based on yesterday's statement of the Fed, it does not seem that they're going to be taking their foot off the pedal in terms of raising interest rates, lowering the balance sheet. So the punch ball, as you know, a lot of people like to say it, is definitely being taken away from this party right now. And that coupled with, and then all these headlines of COVID and geopolitical issues, which have always been there, right? I mean, if you look back over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there are always risks in the market. From that perspective, though, uh, just forgetting price action for a second, but just looking at valuation, the S&P index, you know, if you take a look at the entire valuation of all of the 500 companies and you divide that by GDP, which is one indicator that, you know, Warren Buffett loves to look at, uh, even though he obviously looks at individual companies, but just from the perspective of whether the entire market is frothy or not, taking a look at the entire valuation of the, like, i.e. the market cap of the S&P 500 index, dividing it by U.S. GDP, gives some indication of whether it's, uh, you know, still running a bit hot or whether it's undervalued. And right now, that ratio, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, is still sitting close to two, right, that ratio. Uh, To give you some context, in the financial crisis, this number went to under one. Mm. So that was definitely, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but that was a time of huge value. And with it came huge risks also. But uh, it was interesting to see just looking back over the course of history, this kind of valuation, and we're still sitting, you know, at a relatively high elevated uh, levels, was close to pre-financial crisis and closer to the dot-com. So from that perspective, I mean, you know, gazing into my crystal ball to some extent and then looking out over the next year or two years, uh, again, no idea about the next two months or three months, it definitely does seem that there's still a fair amount of overvalued companies uh, whose price correction is still uh, in, you know, relatively an earlier inning state. But at the same time, there are a lot of sectors that, you know, if you look at their price from going back, say, three, four years to right now, they've been relatively stagnant because they were not in the technology sector, right? So you have a lot of things. It might not be great from an ESG perspective, but traditional energy companies. uh, Take a look at more uh, household consumer names, not in uh, the tech space again, right? Like the likes of Kellogg, uh, Disney to some extent. Trading at still, I would say, pretty interesting and relatively good valuations, which... uh, 
I would like to think are relatively safe for investors who are happy to buy and hold. And even if these names do correct like 20, 30, 40% over the next six months, because again, who knows what's going to happen in the short term, try to do some dollar cost averaging, scaling up to, to these names, collect those dividends over the next couple of years. And I think in the long run, this should work out okay. It's always risky going in for a company that's trading well above conventional uh, profit metrics or price to earnings ratio or price to free cash flow metrics because you need this company to be on that growth trajectory for the next four, five, 10 years. And with that comes additional risk mm-hmm. as compared to more stable names that are trading at relatively attractive multiples so that even if the company's growth is not there, who knows, right? Mr. Market may give you an opportunity because a lot of people start thinking that, oh, this might be the time for value stocks, not so much growth stocks. And you see the, the multiplier, like the, the financial metric multiplier kick in, you do have that safety net over there. It's all about risk, isn't it? If investing was um, risk-free, then it wouldn't be called investing. It would be a short thing. It would be called a short thing. <laughs> I mean, and as risk-free, by all means, put your money into a 10-year bond and earn 1.8%. And if you're happy with that, then, uh, okay. you know, by all let's, means. Let's look at bonds. So when investors get nervous about the economy and they sell equities, they typically switch into bonds. And then that pushes the prices up and yields down. But we're not really seeing that happen right now. I mean, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note basically stagnant. It is now 1.852. It was about 1.78% a couple of days back. Um, So slight changes over the past week. Why do you think that is? If we're seeing deleveraging, if investors aren't rotating into bonds also, where are they putting their money? Yeah, so, you know, Michelle, I think this is one big risk. uh, And we, we might be seeing a potential blow up of uh, these funds called risk parity funds Hmm. over the course of the next six, nine months, which is highly dependent though on how the Fed actually takes the next step in terms of winding down their balance sheet. Because what is the Fed done right now, right? In the front end, the Fed funds rate and central banks, this is not just the Fed, central banks across the globe have basically brought their front end interest rates to zero. Right, give or take. I mean, excluding China, you look at Europe, you look at uh, uh, any other developed market, the US, front end has been brought to zero. And artificially, to some extent, the Fed has printed money, gone out to the back end of the curve, five years, 10 years, 30 years, and sat and bought these uh, treasuries, mortgage bonds, etc. And by buying the bonds, they bring down the interest rates, right? Because uh, it's in in inverse relation to each other. So they've been pushing up the prices of these bonds, i.e. lowering the interest rates of the back end of the curve to facilitate uh, corporates and other people to borrow money in a more cheaper fashion. Because every interest rate kind of gets set by the U.S. government curve. What's happening right now is the front end of the curve is starting to go up inch by inch from close to 0%, we'll probably see it end up closer to 1% by the end of the year. And you're seeing the Fed uh, not just stop purchasing uh, these back-end bonds, but letting them roll off and actually reduce its balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So that huge, you know, the, the gorilla in the room or the elephant in the room, the Fed is not there sitting on the bid, buying these back-end bond curve, leading to the market predicting that the 10 year is going to go up to 2.2, 2.5, whatever. It's going to start normalizing a lot more. And so then 
if you're an investor and you're looking at equity and you're like, oh my God, this has been a big correction of 20% or whatever, I'm kind of levered. I need to get out of the equity space. Mm. But wait a minute, the bond space is not looking that attractive anymore because the Fed is not going to be there. And if the Fed is not going to play in my backyard, I don't want to play in that backyard. So you're seeing both of these asset classes getting whacked. And that's where the risk parity boys typically blow up. So I, I think that's something that the Fed has to be careful about because these are like very, very large institutional investors that have hundreds of billions of dollars at play, taking this 70% equity, 30% bonds in a levered basis, hoping that one asset class will do well and the other asset class will compensate for me and vice versa, right? So I think that's something that the market has to be, and the Fed especially has to be very careful about, and retail investors too. I I think what people should be looking at Mm -hmm. is much more closer term money market funds. I, I do not see value at all in the 10-year or 30-year bonds, mm. govies, or if you go down the risk curve and start, you know, you want that 4 5 6%, you have to start going into some very risky credit names, right, which is not the smart thing to do right now on a risk-adjusted basis. So I think that's why we're seeing these, these kinds of uh, dislocations in the market right now. Thank you, as always, for your brilliant reading of the market. Aaron Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, right here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.